Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of PTSD, drug use, sex, and violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. From 35,000 feet above ground, 20-year-old Kathy Kirko looked out the window of her plane. She silently wondered what would happen next. Just hours before, Kathy had felt on top of the world, an integral half of a hijacking duo that would stir the entire nation. Now, she felt as helpless as her fellow passengers. It was nearly 5 a.m. on June 3, 1972, more than 12 hours since Kathy and her mastermind boyfriend had boarded a flight to Seattle. They'd intended to hold the passengers for ransom money and a free trip out of the U.S. Somewhere along the way, plans changed. And while Kathy no longer knew what lay ahead, she didn't dare find her co-conspirator for answers in fear of blowing her cover. So when the plane touched down in New York, Kathy considered her next move. The passengers, their would-be hostages, now eagerly rushed to file out of the aircraft. Many of them looked her way, confused why she remained seated. Kathy wondered why too. It would be so easy to join them. After all, no one knew she was working with the bad guy in the cockpit. She could slip out and leave her boyfriend to his derailed plot. Kathy hesitated. Should she stay or should she go? Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. This is our second episode on Kathy Kirko, also known as the Hippie Hijacker. Last week, we explored Kathy's rebellious adolescence and the development of her relationship with Roger Holder. Together, they planned an elaborate hijacking plot in an attempt to free activist Angela Davis. This week, we'll learn how Kathy's takeover took a turn for the worse, making her a fugitive on the FBI's most wanted list. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, 
You'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is your last chance to enter the Ohio Lottery's Fun Turns 50 promotion. Score $3,500 and two tickets to the epic party at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, where you could win part of another $400,000 in cash prizes. Enter the new 50th anniversary scratch-off or $50 worth of eligible non-winning $5 or $10 scratch-offs and My Lotto Rewards through the Ohio Lottery app. Hurry up. The last entry deadline is May 13th. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. On June 2nd, 1972, just before 3 p.m., 22-year-old Roger Holder interrupted Western Airlines Flight 701 as it descended toward Seattle. He informed the pilot that he had a bomb in a briefcase, and according to his claims, it wasn't the only explosive device on board. Four members of a radical group who called themselves Weathermen were allegedly standing by, guarding the other explosives. Unable to verify whether Roger was telling the truth, the captain and co-pilot took his word. Like similar takeovers throughout the past decade, they responded as they were trained to, submitting to any request the hijacker made. In this case, Roger Holder demanded the pilot fly to San Francisco. He also wanted $3 million, five parachutes, and political activist Angela Davis brought to the runway. The couple planned to direct the flight to North Vietnam and then Australia in hopes of halting the Vietnam War and seeking permanent asylum overseas. But the couple had made one critical mistake in their hijack of Flight 701. It was a small airliner meant only for short journeys. So when Roger demanded that they turn around and head for San Francisco at the tail end of the trip, the pilot insisted they land and refuel first. They didn't have enough gas to get where Roger wanted. And even once they refueled, they'd still have to transfer aircrafts eventually. There was no way they'd make it across the Atlantic on the same plane they'd hijacked. But back in coach, 20-year-old Kathy Kirko had no idea what was happening, even though she was the only other co-conspirator aboard. Someone else might have felt resentment for being kept in the dark the way Kathy had been, but Roger had won Kathy's complete loyalty long ago. As far as she was concerned, he could do no wrong. Before we continue with Kathy's psychology, I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. Psychologist Francesca Righi studied couples who commit crimes together. She found that one individual usually has more serious criminal inclinations, but the other one rises to their level due to close contact. Generally, these couples live together and cut themselves off from the rest of society. In doing so, they create a small, impermeable world of their own where ethics can be easily warped without external influences. Since Kathy had been living in this dynamic with Roger, she failed to see any problems with his actions. She had love blinders on, and like the couples in Rigi's study, she refused to peer beyond them. So whatever Roger had in store, Kathy was on board. 
Western Airlines Flight 701 briefly touched down in Seattle around 3.15 p.m., but only remained grounded long enough for a maintenance team to refuel the plane. Shortly after they took off for San Francisco, one man found Roger's personal bag and wanted to search it. Worried they might discover something they shouldn't, Kathy voiced fake concern to the flight attendants. She claimed it might upset the weathermen. A stewardess agreed, ordering the passengers to leave the bag alone. Reluctantly, they complied. Kathy stayed alert throughout the remainder of the flight until they landed at San Francisco International Airport at 6.15 p.m. There, she looked for an FBI ambush, but she didn't see anyone suspicious. She also scanned the runway for Angela Davis, but there was no sign of the revolutionary either. In fact, Angela Davis wanted nothing to do with the hijackers. She flatly refused to be involved, not even to help de-escalate the hijacking. But like so many other details, Kathy didn't know this. Then, just before 7 o'clock, Western Airlines Flight 701 took off once more and started to circle the airport from the skies. Kathy's stomach turned. Something was wrong. She and Roger were still empty-handed. Maybe he'd been overtaken in the cockpit, but she stayed in her seat awaiting new information, unwilling to blow her cover. A tense hour of silence passed before Roger's calm voice resonated from the cabin speakers, giving a vague update to the non-existent weathermen. They'd be landing in San Francisco once again. Kathy was confused but relieved at the update. So long as Roger was with her, she felt confident that everything would work out. Just after 8 o'clock, the flight landed once again in San Francisco. Kathy looked out the window to a peculiar sight. Angela Davis still wasn't there, but she did see an armored truck with a hydraulic lift approaching the plane. There was a shuffle at the front of the aircraft, and Kathy strained her neck to see what was going on. The cabin door opened, and the co-pilot reached out to grab something. A moment later, Kathy heard a heavy thud. The co-pilot had pulled a large canvas bag onto the plane. It had to be money. With the deal partly satisfied, passengers shared a collective sigh of relief. If the ransom was there, then the hijacking must be over, at least for them. Too excited by their impending freedom, none of them noticed the Boeing 720H slowly creeping towards them. But then the captain addressed the travelers. Regret dripped from his voice as he spoke. We're going to need everyone sitting on the right side to file out the rear of the plane and up into the other aircraft. Walk fast. Passengers looked around at each other in panic. Some who were sitting on the right side jumped into empty seats on the left, but there were only a few of those available. Slowly, Kathy and the rest of the right side travelers got up and filed onto the aircraft now stationed beside the hijacked plane. In total, 27 passengers piled into the new jet, including Kathy. Behind her, Roger walked across the runway with his briefcase held tight. Another man, the flight engineer, carried the canvas sack of money. 
As Kathy took her seat in the new plane, her worry returned. Switching aircrafts definitely wasn't part of the plan. At 9.21 p.m. on June 2nd, the new plane, Western Airlines Flight 364, took off. For the remaining passengers, the last hour had been a whirlwind of emotions. They'd caught a glimpse of freedom, only to have it ripped away moments later. It was anyone's guess where they were headed, even for Kathy. But the pilots soon provided their answer. After a full day of flying, their next stop was JFK Airport in New York. Kathy's heart sunk as she remembered their original plan. Vietnam and Australia seemed like distant dreams now. Hours later, on the early morning of June 3rd, the plane taxied along JFK's empty runway. For more than 15 minutes, the crew and passengers waited for something to happen. Then the passengers were instructed to exit the plane. Kathy watched as they filed off one by one. She contemplated joining them, knowing she could lie her way out of any future questioning. But just then, Roger's voice came over the loudspeaker. Kathy, you stay here. Her heart sunk as she sat back into her seat. The decision had been made for her. She was in this for the long haul. Up next, Kathy and Roger flee from authorities. Hi, listeners. There's a new Spotify original from Parcast you do not want to miss. It's called Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers, and it uncovers the most damning details surrounding history's most high-profile leaders. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency. From torrid love affairs and contemptible corruption to shocking cover-ups and even murder, she'll expose the personal and professional controversies you may never knew existed. You'll hear some wildly true stories about presidents such as Richard Nixon, Thomas Jefferson, Teddy Roosevelt, JFK, and more. Very Presidential highlights the exploits you never learned in history class, but probably should have. Family drama, personal vices, dirty secrets. These presidents may have run, but they most certainly can't hide. Follow the fantastic new series, Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to the story. On June 2nd, 1972, 20-year-old Kathy Kirko and her boyfriend, 22-year-old Roger Holder, hijacked a flight from Los Angeles to Seattle. But nothing was going according to plan. The plane was too small to fly overseas. Angela Davis wanted nothing to do with their rescue mission. Now they'd been rerouted to New York's JFK airport. 
Finally, at 6.25 on the morning of June 3rd, the hijacked aircraft took off for its final leg of the journey. They'd fly from New York to wherever Roger requested. Now the only remaining passenger, Kathy walked up the lonely aisle. She found her lover in first class, smoking a joint as if they weren't in the middle of a hijacking. He extended a hit to her. She sat down next to him and breathed the drug into her lungs, hoping it would ease her anxieties. Then she asked him the question that had plagued her for the past six hours. Where exactly were they headed? Unconcerned, Roger told her they were on course for Algiers in North Africa. Kathy stared at him blankly, unsure how to react. On the one hand, she felt angry and misled. She didn't even know where Algeria was, and he'd promised her a future in Australia. But when she looked at her boyfriend, she couldn't stay mad. She trusted him to bring them somewhere safe. So she rationalized the drastic change of plans and felt her frustration turn to revelry. She had wanted adventure after all, and Roger had readily supplied it. To show her appreciation, Kathy took Roger's hand and led him back into the coach cabin far away from the flight crew. Then she laid down in one of the back rows and pulled him on top of her. Soon, Kathy and Roger joined the Mile High Club. As the two blazed hijackers fooled around in the sky, the flight crew brainstormed ways to take them out before having to land in potentially hostile territory. But in the end, the captain ordered his crew to stand down. There were simply too many ways that course of action would threaten their already periled lives. Roger returned to the cockpit, barking orders, making sure they were still on course for Algiers. Meanwhile, after asking the crew to turn up the heat in the cabin, Kathy took a nap in first class. As the plane neared Algeria, one of the nation's officials reached out to Roger over the radio to discuss his demands. Roger had made two requests. The first, he wanted confirmation that he would be granted asylum once he got there. And second, Roger wanted Black Panther leader Eldridge Cleaver to meet him at the airport. Finally, it was beginning to make sense why Roger had chosen Algiers as his new destination. The country was home to the Black Panthers International Branch, a political organization Roger had grown particularly passionate about. After learning about the incoming U.S. hijackers, Cleaver was intrigued. One detail in particular enticed him. Kathy and Roger were coming with half a million dollars. As the plane descended, Kathy sat by herself, catching sight of the beautiful Algerian beaches below. She was open to the possibility that their new destination might just prove to be even better than Australia. But when the plane landed at 6.57 p.m. local time, a dozen military vehicles swarmed the aircraft. It wasn't exactly a warm welcome. Kathy looked up as Roger entered the cabin, carrying the canvas sack of money over his shoulder. He urged her to exit the aircraft first, thinking the soldiers outside would be less likely to shoot a woman. But Kathy insisted that she and Roger walk out together. 
Reluctantly, Roger agreed, and the two took their first steps in Algeria. No one shot at them when they came down the stairs. Instead, they were ushered into the terminal, where Algerian officials demanded that the hijackers hand over the briefcase with the bomb, as well as the money. Roger was hesitant to give up the cash, but with armed soldiers all around him, he had no choice. He handed the canvas bag of money over. Then he carefully gave them his briefcase. But when the officers took the briefcase to inspect it, they were surprised to find there was no bomb inside. The real danger had been a well-executed lie all along. Before they were escorted out of the airport, Eldridge Cleaver approached. Since her first experience at a Black Panthers rally when she was 18 years old, Kathy had been obsessed with the group. Now, standing before one of its most well-known members, Kathy beamed. Roger did, too. To them, Cleaver was a hero. But Cleaver, on the other hand, wasn't so pleased by the sight of the couple standing before him. The intimidating soldiers he'd expected were just a thin, scrawny black man and his white hippie girlfriend. Cleaver's disappointment only grew when he asked about the money. Kathy and Roger admitted they'd handed it over. Outraged, Cleaver made a scene and was ushered out by government officials. But before he left, he slipped his phone number to Roger. They may not have been the warriors Cleaver had expected, but a partnership between them could still prove lucrative. Later that night, Kathy and Roger were brought to Hotel Aledi in a black sedan. As long as their identities remained under investigation, the couple were to be guests of Algeria, kept under a watchful eye. By the time they reached the hotel lobby, Kathy and Roger were already infamous. Casino goers whispered about them. Some even applauded them. Algerians had severed relations with the U.S. some five years prior in the wake of the Arab-Israeli War. And now, Kathy and Roger were hailed as dissidents. While the couple was too tired to fully bask in the public approval, both were proud of what they had accomplished. They celebrated over a glass of red wine and then retired to their city view room. In the hallway, a dozen police officers guarded their door. Utterly exhausted after the 30-hour ordeal, Kathy and Roger collapsed into bed, falling asleep as soon as their heads hit the pillow. The next morning, the two awoke wide-eyed and ecstatic. They were in the company of revolutionaries, not to mention that the American news cycle was in a frenzy about them. They had pulled off the longest distance hijacking on record. Kathy basked in the fame and attention. Nothing could dampen their moods. That was until they were told they couldn't leave the hotel premises. When they tried to leave their room that morning, the guards insisted they'd have to meet with President Wari Boumedien before they'd see a cent of their ransom money. But the president was out of town. So they waited, their rose-tinted glasses now a bit less rosy. Three days later, on June 6th, Kathy and Roger met with President Boumedien. He took one look at the couple, snapped off a couple of orders to his men, and then bade them goodbye. 
Shocked, Kathy and Roger questioned what had just happened. They still didn't have their money or a promise of asylum. Instead, they were sent back to their hotel empty-handed and waited for their next meeting with authorities. Every day for the next two weeks, Boumediene's police questioned Kathy and Roger's political motives. Roger rambled aimlessly about his hopes of putting an end to the Vietnam War, and they struggled to pin him down. Even more, they couldn't understand why a woman like Kathy was entangled with such a man. He seemed reactive and unhinged, while Kathy appeared to be an average young American woman. But she enjoyed having all eyes on her, both as a hijacker and as an attractive woman. Since Islam is the predominant religion in Algeria, many of its women wear burqas, hiding their bodies from the male gaze. But Kathy was a rebellious party girl from San Diego, where being provocative had become one of her favorite pastimes. She wore her tight pants and low-cut tops, relishing in the attention. Some glances suggested discomfort, others unsuccessfully hid lust. Both reactions satisfied Kathy. According to psychologist Mindy Urchel, women can feel empowered through self-sexualization. By openly courting objectification, Kathy controlled her narrative. She was tired of letting Roger make all the decisions. In this small way, she rebelled, deciding for herself how people would see her. Of course, Roger didn't approve of this, but his attempts to protect her only further stoked Kathy's secret thrill. Every night, it was the same deal. Kathy turned eyes, and Roger attempted to ward them off. Finally, the Algerian government decided neither Kathy nor Roger displayed problematic politics. They were officially granted asylum and given a government stipend. But now that they knew they'd be allowed to stay in the country, they needed somewhere to live more permanently. The hotel had been nice, but they couldn't remain there forever, so they called Eldridge Cleaver. He was happy to take them under his wing, believing the ransom money would still eventually be returned to the hijackers and thus to the movement. But by the end of June, Cleaver discovered that wasn't the case. President Boumediene decided to return the money to the United States in an attempt to dissuade future hijackers from coming to Algeria. Kathy and Roger were upset about losing their ransom cash, but Cleaver and his fellow radicals were downright peeved. They believed they were owed that money. Unable to let it go, Cleaver wrote an open letter to President Boumediene, condemning his poor judgment. He claimed Algeria was working against its radical allies by submitting to the whims of the United States. But the scorching callout backfired immediately. The president deemed Cleaver's letter an attack on his leadership. In retaliation, he ordered a raid on the Black Panthers' living quarters. And after that, Algeria pulled support from Cleaver as the organization's leader. If the Black Panthers wanted to continue operating, Cleaver would have to step down. And less than three months later, Roger Holder was named as Cleaver's successor. Kathy couldn't believe it. She had spent the past year of her life dreaming up ways to change the world with the Black Panthers. 
Now, Roger was in line to run its international section. Unfortunately, he was the person least qualified to lead. Up next, Kathy learns the full extent of Roger's psychological issues. And now, back to the story. After gaining asylum in Algeria, 20-year-old Kathy Kirko and 22-year-old Roger Holder joined the Black Panthers International Section in the summer of 1972. After several tumultuous changes in leadership, Roger found himself in charge of the group. However, it didn't take long for him to lose interest in being the boss. He hated dealing with the day-to-day administration, and he had no clear goals to work towards, just continued criticisms about America and the Vietnam War that did nothing to produce change. But Roger wouldn't have to lead for much longer. The changes caused by the president's critique of the Black Panthers had left its members disheartened by the Algerian government. Then, in mid-1973, rumors of a potential extradition agreement with the states started circulating. If it passed, all expatriates found on Algerian soil would be handed back to U.S. authorities. In response, most people in the organization fled to France. But Kathy and Roger didn't believe the U.S. and Algeria would ever follow through on the rumored agreement. They also weren't convinced that they'd be received any better in another country. So the two resolved to enjoy the small stipend they received from the Algerian government and adjust to their new lives. Unfortunately, their relationship soured in the dullness of everyday life. Without the Black Panthers to make them feel like they were a part of something, they grew bored and annoyed with each other. To make matters worse, Roger's mental state continued to deteriorate. He suffered regular panic attacks and paranoia consumed him. After only a few months trying to enjoy their new life together, Kathy couldn't take it. She needed help, so she called on their old friend, Eldridge Cleaver. He helped them escape to France under new identities in January of 1974. Once the two arrived in Paris, an Algerian acquaintance helped Roger get into a psychiatric institute that assisted traumatized war veterans. After months of paranoid delusions, Kathy and Roger both agreed it was for the best. On her own, Kathy flourished. She dated all sorts of wealthy Frenchmen, developed a love for fashion, and learned to define herself outside of her relationship to Roger. But then, in the fall of 1974, Roger left the clinic and came back to live with Kathy in Paris. He was still having trouble functioning because of his PTSD, but he didn't want to be away from Kathy anymore. Kathy wasn't thrilled, but she couldn't send him back to the Institute or turn him out onto the streets, so she returned once more to her duties as his caretaker, navigating his erratic emotional outbursts and panic attacks. Still, the freedom she'd explored throughout the spring and summer of that year stayed with her. She couldn't return to being the dependent girlfriend she once was, and she continued to see other people while Roger stayed with her. The romantic heat that had once blazed between the two hijackers now fizzled out, a fact that didn't sit well with Roger. 
he had given up life with his two daughters in America to build a new one with Kathy, but now he was forced to face life alone. Feeling hopeless, Roger turned to alcohol. On January 6, 1975, 25-year-old Roger drunkenly wandered through the city, a habit he had sustained since moving in with Kathy. When two Paris police officers noticed him stumbling, they brought him into the station. There, Roger proceeded to tell them his life story, completely unprompted, including his name, address, and the fact that he was wanted in America for hijacking a plane. His story was unlike any the officers had ever heard, but they wrote him off as a drunk and sent him on his way. After he left, the Parisian police mentioned the incident to the American embassy, just in case. When American authorities realized their French counterparts had sent Roger Holder back to his home a free man, they were furious. In response, the Parisian police set out in the night to find Roger once more. When Roger returned to the apartment that night, he immediately told Kathy what had happened. Frustrations overcame her. She couldn't believe he'd been so careless with their lives. But there was no time to get upset. She knew they had to leave right then and there. They quickly packed their bags and made a getaway to another Paris safe house, just in the nick of time. Mere hours after they left, the French authorities arrived at the address Roger had supplied. Kathy and Roger remained hidden for two weeks before deciding it was safe to go back to their apartment. Kathy hoped the French officers had lost interest in them. But a neighbor notified the police when Kathy and Roger returned. The next morning, as Roger left for his walk, he was arrested. Then they infiltrated the apartment and handcuffed Kathy. She tried to lie about her identity, but she soon realized it was no use. The Parisian authorities had already spoken to U.S. officials. So she changed tactics and lawyered up. On February 7, 1975, 23-year-old Kathy and 25-year-old Roger headed to court for a preliminary hearing determining whether or not they should be extradited. Roger couldn't take the pressure. Before he even entered the courtroom, he collapsed and started to seize. He hadn't been taking his medication, and he was deemed too fragile to stand up in open court. Instead, Kathy walked into the courtroom as the sole defendant, soaking up the spotlight. The judge rattled off the charges against her, air piracy, kidnapping, and extortion. In return, Kathy replied in French, This warrant for arrest concerns me, but I have nothing to say for the moment. The press gobbled up the show. No one knew quite what to make of this beautiful American woman who had hijacked a plane, joined the Black Panthers, and now spoke their language impeccably. But the public's adoration didn't stop Kathy and Roger from being locked behind bars while they awaited a verdict. On March 3, 1975, nearly a month after their initial hearing, Kathy spoke to a group of journalists in words that won the hearts of every ear listening, she confided her hope that she and Roger would be protected in France as political refugees. 
It was, after all, a long-standing tradition of France to shelter revolutionaries. Two weeks later, on March 17th, Kathy took the stand in her formal hearing and stuck to that strategy. She said the hijacking was something they felt they needed to do because of the Vietnam War. In the end, the judge decided that Kathy and Roger had acted out of political motives and therefore they would not be extradited. To appease the United States, the judge conceded that he would think about trying the couple in France. Until he made a decision on that, they would be kept in jail. Though it wasn't an ideal way to spend the interim, Kathy was relieved that the judge seemed to sympathize with her alleged motivations. In June 1975, just five months after their arrests, the judge found Kathy and Roger guilty of possessing false passports, a small crime with a tiny punishment. They were fined a few hundred francs and sentenced to time already served. That meant they were free to go. The judge warned that they might still be tried for hijacking and ordered them to stay in Paris and check in with a magistrate every two weeks. Despite the possibility of another arrest, Kathy celebrated, enjoying her newfound popularity. French activists and celebrities took a particular interest in her, and she was often invited to parties all around town. Roger, on the other hand, struggled to define himself in this new society. Without a cause to fix himself to, or a war to rant about, he felt more lost than ever. Adding insult to injury, the more time Kathy spent with her new friends, the less interest she had in Roger. He had become dead weight to her. And the schism between them only further deepened when Roger admitted to Kathy that he wanted to return to America. He missed his family and regretted leaving his daughters behind. Kathy, on the other hand, had dissolved any lingering regrets. She loved her life in Paris, and she didn't want to jeopardize it in any way. She distanced herself from Roger by moving into her own apartment and only seeing him sporadically. Finally, in February 1978, 26-year-old Kathy confessed to Roger that she was not willing to wait for the possibility of the hijacking trial or for Roger to get them into some further trouble. They had spent three years living in limbo, unsure if they'd be dragged back to the U.S. She was tired of constantly wondering whether they were in the clear. So she said goodbye, promising that she would come see him again soon. And Roger believed her. After all, where could she go? They were ordered to remain in Paris. But in Kathy's mind, staying was never an option. As she slipped into a cab outside his apartment, she took one final look over her shoulder. Then she ordered the taxi driver to pull away. That was the last time Roger ever saw her. It would be another 12 weeks before Kathy was reported missing. She failed to appear at her magistrate check-in six times when her parole officer finally decided to alert the authorities. But by then, it was too late. Three months was a significant head start, 
Plus, Kathy spoke multiple European languages, making it easy for her to slip by undetected. And when those didn't work, her good looks and charm seemed to do the trick. French police believed she had gone to Geneva for a new passport and papers, but wherever she went from there, no one could be sure. The standing theory was that Kathy went off to live her life in some European country. She may have even returned to France under a new name, disappearing into the pleasures of a Parisian lifestyle. As for Roger, he eventually got his wish to return home. It just required a few pit stops. He waited out five years of probation in France. Then he begged the U.S. consulate to give him an American passport. Finally, on July 26, 1986, 30-year-old Roger landed back on U.S. soil, where he was promptly arrested by the FBI. He spent nearly two years in detention, waiting for his lawyer to secure him a plea bargain. He was sentenced to four years and released in August 1989. After regaining his freedom, Roger lived off his veteran's pension and took on the occasional side job, but most of his life was spent smoking marijuana and attempting to write memoirs. As he aged, he sometimes thought of Kathy. He hadn't seen her since that fateful day in Paris. In fact, he was the last known person to see her. After she fled France in 1978, Kathy Kirko disappeared. No one's seen her since, at least not to their knowledge. But it's possible she's still out there somewhere, passing people in the streets, hiding a whole history of debaucherous deeds in her back pocket. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Kathy Kirko, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Skies Belong to Us by Brendan Corner, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson.
It's the most powerful position in American politics, and arguably the world. But behind the oath to preserve, protect, and defend lie dark secrets posed to leave some legacies in disgrace. Don't forget to check out the new Spotify original from Parcast, Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency, exposing wildly true stories about history's most high-profile leaders. To hear more, follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.